Hey, podcast listeners, Ethan Millard and Alex Curie here from the Nightside Project podcast here at KSL Podcast. Get into Zen Headlines with us on the Nightside Project. Use hashtag Zen Headlines on social media to share stories that make you think, make you smile, spread love, spread joy, all those things. We'll share them on the Nightside Project podcast. One of the most popular podcasts ever. Nightside is a KSL podcast. Subscribe for free anywhere you listen to podcasts. On today's show, a lot of heartburn over the proposed food tax increase. And the question, censure over impeachment. Representative Ben McAdams is on the censure train. Tune in Monday through Thursday, 9 to 11 for Dave and Dijanovic. We live in a world where everyone is putting their best foot forward. And on social media, of course, we only see the very best of what people are up to and their successes. And that is great. I'm not saying there is a thing wrong with that and, and snaps to all of those people having great success. But it's likely, and actually it's probably more honest to assume, that not every day is exactly as picture perfect as it appears. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Co-founders of Four Foods Group. Um, we've got about 170 restaurants between all the Little Caesars and the Meters brand and the Mobettas and R&R Barbecue, and we're going to learn more about these. But, um, Shauna, I was... First time we got introduced was when you were winning awards at the uh, the Sego Awards uh, a couple weeks back. Oh my goodness! Yes, that was a great night. Wow, I that was totally unexpected, and um, yeah, just super honored to be there that night. It was nice to meet you there too. That's fun. What I really like is that Andrew was off doing his tech stuff, and you're the one that got this all started, and he had yes. to you for the job, right? Yeah. I don't know many times in my life that I've been able to claim the OG title, but yeah, I was the OG of this business. And yeah, 11 years ago, we started with a, a goal to just open one little bakery and cafe in the town that we had just moved into and, and be a part of our community. And that started... The um, the moonshot after moonshot goal to build one more and then two more and then ten more and then twenty more and here we are today 170 or so yeah. restaurants and five different brands. Well, and I think the first one I want to talk about is what we were talking about before because I lived by one. Yes. Can you tell people who aren't familiar with with uh, the concept for Swig mm-hmm. what it is and why it's like a cult? <laughs> Well, you know, for me, the best way to describe Swig is just to say that it is happiness in a cup. It's a soda shop where we serve sodas with different shots of flavorings and fresh lemons and limes. And then, of course, you order yourself a side of another side of sugar in the form of a cookie. And yeah, for whatever reason, there's a cult following. I mean, people start their mornings with Swig. The lines begin at 7.30 a.m., and they don't stop until we close at the end of the day. It's just, it, I think everyone feels better when they have a, a soda in hand. There's something about it. Can you tell me a little bit? Andrew is a longtime entrepreneur, uh, and I'd love to hear kind of from both of you how you both uh, kind of got into your entrepreneurial career. I think it'd be interesting to hear those those kind of differences because you 
were not starting businesses before no no before this i was at the time a stay-at-home mom and so content and happy to do that and it's still my favorite job yet but there was an opportunity obviously to be in the a part of the community like i mentioned and I've been so fortunate all of these years to have individuals like my husband and other mentors and leaders who have nudged me to do more and to be more. And so that really was the beginning of entrepreneurship for me. I had some really great supportive individuals who were saying to me, get out there and do it. You have so much more to offer the world. And and I think when you hear that, at first, you're like, I don't know if I do or not, but maybe if I start believing it a little bit and seeing the results, then I, I can actually um, catch on myself and do it. And, and I think that does happen. Your, your confidence does start to, to snowball in, in a positive way when you start to see positive results, for sure. And Andrea, I'd love to hear, you've been an entrepreneur for a long time gone through some challenging times as well and can you just tell us that kind of that backstory no 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 it's just all roses actually (laughs) you just start a business the money rolls in it's easy no it's it's difficult doesn't matter if you're starting a business if you're a medium-sized business or you're a large business there comes challenges at every level and the journey really is what's exciting about being an entrepreneur and you know we're a much larger company than we've ever been now and we look back and i think some of my greatest times of being an entrepreneur is when you're starting up and every single day you wake up and you don't know what the heck you're going to do next. You know, you got to do something to keep the ball rolling and growing. Um, but those are some of the most favorite times. Do I want to go back to that point? No, I don't want to start up again because it's very, very difficult. But the one thing that I do like about entrepreneurship is the ability to change lives. You, you create something that people are excited about. They get excited to come to work every day and that you get to see the changes in their lives too. You get to pay them more as you get bigger. You get to celebrate you know, with them as you celebrate, um, they celebrate. And that's pro- probably the biggest thing that pushes Sean and I both is just creating opportunity for thousands of people. I mean, we've had 21,000 employees that we've created or jobs for over the last 20 plus years and businesses we've started. But with Shauna, it was, it was an easy change for me to see her go from <coughs> really the corporate wife to a uh, entrepreneur as she has been the last 11 years. Um, I was the CEO of my last tech company and we had just talked about changing industries because we had just gotten through the 2007-8 bubble. Um, I had gone through the 2000-2001 bubble as well with my first tech company. Survived that one and I survived the 2007-8 bubble uh, by the skin of my teeth, but we survived it. And you learn a lot during that time. And for us both, we thought, you know, we've been in tech for 10 years. We've survived two of the biggest bubbles. And we should do something that's a little bit more resilient to market corrections and changes, something that's more defensible. And for us, we thought, what do you do no matter if the Dow is 6,000 or if it's 26,000? You eat. We all are eating. We might be crying while we're eating, but you're eating, right? And so for us, we thought, well, let's look at the last 25 years and see how defensible that, that thought process is. And when we looked at it, the worst year in food and beverage ever, the last 25 years, negative 9%. So markets had been crumbled by negative 60%, 70%. I mean, I felt that. And for a negative nine to be the worst, I thought, that's pretty defensible. And so we knew nothing about it. Shauna started our first business. And the first business was a, a business called Meter's Bakery and Cafe. We were customers, just like many of us were. Um, we'd been around for 10 years. They hadn't grown beyond five stores. We approached the founders and said, why haven't you grown this? This is a phenomenal concept. 
And what they told us was really the thesis or the basis of everything we've done the last 11 years. And that was, well, you know, we have this fantastic concept, but structuring finance is a little bit more difficult than we had anticipated. And, and raising money is different skill set, which it is. And also the skill set to scale something is extremely different than coming up with a concept. We're not chefs, but we know how to do that. And so thus started Four Foods Group, which Shauna started the first. And uh, while I was still wrapping up my, uh, my position in my tech company, I went from the boardroom to the prep table in a restaurant within two days of resigning. And it was one of the, the greatest joys to go and work with my wife side by side. Oh, I, love, I love what you were saying because I think that's actually, especially nowadays with how oversold entrepreneurship is, like everyone's like, oh, like, I want to be an entrepreneur. And I'm always like, Oh, you really don't. And they're like, yeah, but like, look at all these benefits you have. And it's like, yeah, but that's a, it, it's still stressful. Like even when things are successful and things are going well, I always tell friends that they were like, oh, I want, you know, to be an entrepreneur. And I remind them, even though things are going great right now, I'm worried, can we keep it going? Can we keep it up? What if something changes? What if the market shifts? Um, and I think that <laughs> uh, for so many people, they just see the benefits they just see like you get to do whatever you want it's like nah, i really don't get to do whatever i want i have clients which is often a more challenging boss than you know than anyone else and so i think that's such a great reminder as you guys have gone through those uh entrepreneurial changes what are some of like those key lessons about leadership about entrepreneurship that you kind of like those foundational principles that you guys hold to i think that's a great question and i will preface that by making a comment about what you were just talking about. And that is, I always tell entrepreneurs, I, I donate some of my time or contribute it to, to younger entrepreneurs that are entering in the, their new idea, their new, uh, their new venture. And I'm usually as bold as I can be because I wish someone would have been bold with me. And when I sit down with them, I say, first of all, be careful what you wish for, right? Entrepreneurship is extremely difficult. You've heard it many, many times. It's very lonely. It is very lonely. You think that you're the man or the woman that's in charge of everything, but you're really kind of in the corner, scared as a, as a bee, thinking, what, what, what the heck do I do now? I don't know what to say. I don't know how to act. I don't know what to do next. I don't know how to be a great leader when I have more and more employees. So be careful what you wish for because it's a very difficult road and it's a very lonely road. However, some of the things that I've learned that I tell every entrepreneur and I would tell everybody is not to go along with your show name, but to be very innovative in your approach. So when you have an idea and you go into being an entrepreneur, you kind of think in your head, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to build this technology or this product or we're going to build restaurants and sell this product and everyone's just going to flock to it and we're going to sell it and we're going to be millionaires. It never works out that way, ever. And I always say it's going to cost you three times as much and it's going to take you four times as long. And that, I tell you, is exactly how it is every single time I've built a business. It always costs more than you think. It's going to cost you more and it's going to take you longer. So be ready to buckle up and be along for the ride. This is going to be. Uh, the next thing I tell them is to make sure that you're very innovative along the way because the initial idea that you have, it will absolutely, without a doubt, change every single year. So for Sean and I, what we had originally you know, set out to do, Sean said we were going to do one restaurant, then we had moonshot after moonshot. That's how it was. We just innovated as we went to say, wow, that's an opportunity. Let's chase that, see if we can build a business model around it. Once we prove it, let's scale upon it. And then when you grow double the size and three times the size and four times the size, you think the bigger you get, the more revenue you get, oh, it's going to be easy. I can tell you right now, being a $100 million company is a lot easier than being a $200 million company. It's very, 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 very difficult to be a $200 million company. Uh, the complexities are exponential. And so just be careful thinking the bigger I get, the easier my life will be or it will solve a lot of problems. No, more problems are there, 
you just have more people to spread it out with, but you still have to manage more people now. So you kind of you're kind of screwed either way. Is that a, can I say it that way? You heard it here, the joys of entrepreneurship. <laughs> yeah, I, I hate to make it sound morbid, but I do love, I'm a truth teller by nature, and I do appreciate when people are honest and truthful with me. And the one thing that I've said to multiple people, and they have commented that it's really been impactful for them, is the fact that we live in a world where everyone is putting their best foot forward. And on social media, of course, we only see the very best of what people are up to and their successes. And that is great. I'm not saying there is a thing wrong with that and, and snaps to all of those people having great success. But it's likely, and actually it's probably more honest to assume that not every day is exactly as picture perfect as it appears. And, and I often tell people success is not built on success. It's often built on failure and disappointment and sacrifice and a lot of work. And, and I think people, like you said, people love entrepreneurship because they assume that they get to be their own boss and they get to have all of these great perks. And yes, there are those moments, but it's not only that. There is a lot of hard work and difficult days. And, and I would say in entrepreneurship altogether, just prepare for difficult days ahead. And every once in a while, you do have those days where it's like a party. We made it. We did have a successful moment. And then there's a lot more work ahead after that. So it's just a continuation of that. And I don't, again, don't mean to make it sound terrible and awful. It is awesome. It is wonderful. And the creation alone and what you get to do for the world and um, to contribute to society, to society that, that is, a, that is a, a great promise right there. I was just going to add one thing, and that is you had asked for advice to entrepreneurs. And one piece of advice that Sean and I typically will give them is make sure that you have a different purpose than the money. I think every entrepreneur goes into the business because they want to make hordes of money. I mean, everybody in the world wants to make more money. And the sad thing is, is that once you make more money, you just want to make more of that again. And so it never stops. It's like this vicious cycle. And I think that I was caught into that the first decade of my career as an entrepreneur. Um, I think everybody gets caught in that. And I don't think that I would fault anybody for going through that process. But I would say those that are listening that are focused on, if I can just do this, I'll make more money. It is a very, very anticlimactic road. Because once you get to the point where you get the money, maybe it's half of what you thought. It's two times what you thought. You deposit it in your bank account. You go and buy your Ferrari like I did. And then you think, I've arrived. I'm going to be just as happy as anybody on the planet. And then you go, you know, I'm, I'm not after about a month of that. And then you're like, well, maybe if I buy another Ferrari, I'll be even more happy. So then I buy another one. And then a couple of weeks later, you're like, it's just a car and sitting in my garage. I still have to wake up. I still have to go to work. And I still have responsibilities. And it just doesn't matter. So realize that the, the journey is more important. And you have to have a purpose behind what you're doing more so than the money. So when I sit down with someone that Sean and I want to partner with and build businesses with, we say, what is your drive? Like, why are you doing this? And if they say the money, it's just never going to work for Sean and I to work with that person because the money really is secondary to us. For Sean and I, years ago, we thought, you know, in 2008, there, it, things were hurting. People needed jobs bad. And I remember when Sean and I built the first restaurant, like I said, I was still the CEO of my last tech company. And Sean and I were doing interviews to hire 50, 60 people for our restaurant. And we literally had people walking in the door that were far overqualified. 
I mean, people that had had $150,000, $200,000 a year jobs, had kids and a wife at home, and he was just trying to feed his family. And that's hard to see. But we felt like that is our purpose. Let's create jobs and opportunity for as many people as we can. And that was our drive at the time. So I think that both of us would say we'll chalk up our success to creating jobs and opportunity for thousands of people. You know, uh, one of the things that this mini-series Jay and I have been doing together, we've been asking both VCs and startup founders who have really, you know, achieved uncommon success uh, about marketing. You know, so many people, um, at, at first, they've got skills to get to a certain level, but then, you know, for you guys getting, you know, from A, <laughs> cafe bakery to quarter of a billion dollar company, can you talk about, um, in your mind, the difference between all the sales pitches of like, hey, you guys just give us this money, this is going to work for you, you're going to have so many people going to you know, R&R barbecue or whatever, whichever brand it is versus what you guys have actually seen in real life or what you feel like the principles are for attracting people to, to the brands you guys have grown. I, I think that with marketing, marketing has changed over the last 20 years that I've been in business. And in fact, I have a degree in marketing. So I think about what I learned in college 20 plus years ago and then what is actually applicable now. I think I have to go back and get another degree, right? Because it's just changed. I would even say in finance, you know, I, uh, I studied finance as well in school, and I think finance is totally different now and how things are structured and what people are doing. Um, with marketing, though, I think it starts with the culture that you have within the business is what permeates out to your guests. So it's not what you put on the billboard. It's not what you put out with your SEO group that's going to make sure that when they type in best catering around that R&R pops up or Mobetas what you really want is to have a culture to where everything that you live, breathe, and stand for every day within the corporate office and within our stores and within our employees' minds, that that permeates off to the guest. That guest then is going to say, I love when I go into Mobetas because not only do I have great food, but I leave and I feel really, really important to them. I feel like they care about my business. And that's something that Sean and I have really focused on with Four Foods Group is not only having a great culture here and trying to retain talent, talent which we've done a, a phenomenal job at retaining talent, not because of me. People don't like my long hair, so they probably would want to leave, but they like Shauna. But the bottom line, though, is, is that we do whatever we can to have a great culture for people to stay here. But when they stay here, then that permeates out to the stores and then on. Uh, but marketing-wise, I think that people have thought that you can just do social media. You can just throw stuff up on Instagram. You can throw stuff up on Facebook, and then that's it. You're done now. And I feel like we've gone through almost that little bit of a phase, too, over the last year, and I'm realizing – that works, but that's not all. You have to really have a, a full omni-channel marketing program in place, and that's why we're shifting to put more dollars into traditional marketing again. I was just going to say, well, just going along with that, um, I, I think we always have this joke uh, in, in our company that, like, as marketers, we can only, with a bad product, we will only put you out of business really quickly. Like, if we do a great, and we've had that happen with clients. Like, people have come, uh, yeah, and they've they've like had a product that's not ready, and, and we're like, really got to fix this, and they just no, let's just go go go, and it just puts them out of business really really fast because we get millions of people to go to their website, and all of a sudden it's like, well, the product is not great, and so I think that's such wise advice of, we always say a great product has to be there for for marketing to really work, or rather it just doesn't. I agree. And we recognize that very quickly when our stores aren't ready and we've done a big marketing push. And then it's like, oh, hang on. The stores are not prepared. 
and the restaurants themselves, that's what I'm referring to. So yeah, it does have to be matching both preparedness and the marketing. Well, and can you talk about, you know, the idea of, yes, everybody has to eat, right? But it could also be very easy to feel like uh, food becomes just a commodity and, you know, there's, there's fierce competition and stuff like that. Can you talk about how you've tried to differentiate your brands or what you've tried to, to do there? Of course. Um, you're right. It is definitely a fierce market, more so than ever before. We are splitting our dollars between so many different options for what we want to eat for dinner, breakfast, lunch, snacks, drinks, all, all of that. There's so many options, and I think that it's it's a compliment that we are in a business that so many other people want to be in. The restaurant industry, I think, is definitely romanticized. There's a lot of individuals who get into the restaurant business and realize, wait a minute, this is not as romantic and, and cool and fun as it, it seems on the outside. But it is a high compliment that there are so many options out there, and of course we get to be on the receiving end of that. Um, as far as a differentiator for our restaurants, um, we always focus on the humans. And really, our job here is to make sure that all of our leaders are taken care of. And with our leaders, as long as they're taken care of, then our employees will be taken care of, and then our employees will take care of our guests. So it's always about the human element. We're focused on our customers all the time. And there is a trickle effect, and it starts with us right here. But then also, as simple as the food quality, there are so many things that we could really take shortcuts on and figure out easier ways to streamline some of our processes, but we don't. We actually make sure the food product is delicious and wonderful and that people want to continue to come back for it. Well, so for instance, I think of your brands, my favorite is R&R Barbecue, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And it's obviously not the first barbecue joint that's ever existed, but I've been, the, you know, whatever this one is over here by Innovation Point, Thanksgiving Point, it was packed, like to the gills. What do you attribute that to? You ask about how we stand apart from our competition. And I think about how not only do you innovate your brand, but how do you make it to fulfill the entertainment bucket that people have? Uh, when you go out to eat, sometimes you think it's kind of just a commodity, like you said, where you're like, I just have to eat something so I don't pass out. That doesn't really matter. I think people will just do a grab and go, and there's not really this emotional attachment. And like I, I mentioned before, we want our, our guests to walk in, and when they leave, they say, the food was great, but I feel like it was a good experience. The sound of it, the music of it, the way I sat in the restaurant, the materials I used when I ate, how people treated me, the whole piece put together is entertainment. And because the industry has shifted to where it used to be just fast food, casual dining, and fine dining, now it's fragmented into multiple different buckets. Our goal is to get onto your pinwheel. And so think about a pinwheel. You, you can see it spinning in your head right now. We know as restaurateurs that you have a pinwheel of six to seven on your pinwheel, and you have six to seven on your pinwheel. And what that pinwheel is, and you can imagine this, you get in the car, and what do we all do? We look to our wife and say, where do you want to eat? That's what we all do as men. I, if you're not doing that, shame on you. But you say, what, what do you want to eat? And the woman makes about 90-plus percent, 93% of the decisions. They just do for food. And what you want is for her in her mind, or for you even, to be spinning that pinwheel and thinking in your head, well, we haven't been to Costa Vida for four days. We haven't been to, you know, Cubbies for this many. We haven't been to R&R &R for a week and a half. Oh, it's R&R. &R. 
tonight's R&R or meeting for a business lunch. I really like R&R because I can sit in that corner booth and whatever. So we want to get on the pinwheel. If I can get on your pinwheel, I, it is done. We just want to get on your pinwheel of options. To kick someone off of your pinwheel and put us on, that is the hard thing for us to market. It's to get you to try us. And when you try us once, I've got to be so dang good that you have to kick someone off that pinwheel in your mind and go, I've just replaced one that was kind of lower on my totem pole because the quality has gone down, the experience has gone down. You'll probably give them another option because they've been on your pinwheel, but we want to get on your pinwheel. Does that make sense? I'm going to say I think Meter's soft rolls is like a whole two spots on my, uh, on my pinwheel. Uh, we literally buy dozens a week. So anyway. Um, but uh, just just for a last question um, for this this portion – um, as you've as you've kind of built that culture, uh, and and as you've really kind of encouraged that that culture, are there any things you've learned about culture? I think that's something that's so hard a lot of times as a, as an entrepreneur is how do you build a culture? What are some things you've just noticed as a company like building that? Because you guys have multiple brands. I think that's another challenge most people don't have is you have multiple brands that you need to bring build maybe different cultures. But what are some of those lessons you've learned? So many lessons, and especially where we have so many different brands and personalities. Every brand's like its own individual person, human, and there are so many different types of personalities. I think one thing we've learned is that we are all equal contributors to culture, and the goal is to have everyone leaning in as much as possible and creating uh, an environment where we are hiring and employing the best individuals who are contributing to the team so that everyone showing up to work, whether you're in an office, at a restaurant, wherever it is, you're showing up and you're saying, I'm excited to show up today because my peers are amazing and they push me to do better and I have a great time at work working with them and I get to do something that I love. So the fact that we are all equal contributors is, is a great thing that we have really embraced and tried to build within our own culture. And culture can slip so, so easily. And it's the hardest thing probably to rebuild. So it's something that requires constant attention. And we're, we're constantly having conversations around it and one-on-ones with everyone. And it, it doesn't matter where you lie in the professional realm, if you are blue-collar, white-collar, whatever it is, having, having just genuine conversations about what's going on with work and how things are going and making sure we're paying attention to it. That's super important. Well, that's it for the episode. One other thing I wanted to tell you about, if you'll remember the guys from Convoy uh, in episodes back, Ken Free and Trent Mano, I went on one of their CEO trips to New York and I met a guy named Brent Thompson, very successful entrepreneur. He's former CEO of Jive Communications, big uh, company now, I think three or $400 million. Anyways, he, uh, he started a new company called blipbillboards.com. I'm super stoked they're a sponsor now. But I, I remember a year and some ago when I met him, I thought it was genius. Instead of having to buy six months or a year's worth of billboards um, for thousands of dollars, you can buy eight seconds at a time for like 10 or 20 cents. You pick what billboard you want it on, what time of day you want it to run. And it just puts so much power in the hands of, of marketers and CEOs who want to try something and see if it works. You can buy as many or as few as you want, change it as many times as you want. Uh, I think now our podcast is being advertised on billboards in like 18 different states because we have these guys as sponsors. We're pretty excited about it. Hope you check out blipbillboards.com. Thanks.